It's often been said that to experience John Taverner's music is to confront mystery. He is, almost without exception, the most emphatically religious composer of the last 300 years, certainly in the Western tradition. His music causes severe reactions in both performers and listeners alike. And after the premiere of the work we explore today, The Protecting Veil for Solo Cello and String Orchestra, a premiere at the BBC Proms in 1989, Nicholas Kenyon in The Observer put it on equal footing with Messiaen's François d'Assise, Arvo Pertz and John Passion, and Goretzky's Third Symphony. Each one in its own way, said Kenyon, is a masterpiece. Discovering Music comes today from the Maxwell Hall in the University of Salford, and it comes at the tail end of a week or so of creative workshops which have been run by the cellist Matthew Barley with a whole host of brass and some percussion students of this university. And in that, he's been very ably assisted by three musicians from the BBC Philharmonic, Peter Wilmot, Julian Gregory, and Paul Turner. An equally vital part of this creative workshop process has been the element of dance, and that's been curated and choreographed by Steve Kirkham from Frantic Assembly, with assistance from the professional dancer Darren Suarez. And we'll be exploring that piece, which is effectively a companion piece to our main work tonight, The Protecting Veil, a little bit later on. Now, it was always the plan that Matthew Barley and I would, together with the BBC Philharmonic, explore, workshop, and then perform The Protecting Veil. But unfortunately, very recently, due to a skiing accident, Matthew's left shoulder has been temporarily damaged, so he's unable 
to perform. And so a minor miracle, ladies and gentlemen, at the 11th hour, jumping into the breach, would you please welcome Josephine Knight. Before we get too far into our exploration of the protecting veil, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that it is actually the name of a feast within the calendar of the Orthodox Church. It commemorates a vision, an apparition, which appeared very early in the 10th century, high above in the sky, above the city of Constantinople. This is at a time when the Greeks were in grave danger of being invaded. And so this image appeared, this vision of Mary, the mother of God, surrounded by a whole company of angels. And by way of offering a kind of protective shield to the Greeks, she just unwrapped her veil and spread it over the entire Greek army. Empowered by this vision, the Greeks were able to repel the invaders. And then, of course, very quickly, the decision was made by the Orthodox Church to make this a permanent feast to remember this extraordinary occurrence. Now, the protecting veil, John Taverner's work, starts and finishes with the protecting veil itself, an evocation in music of that moment in time. And then in between, there are six other sections, all relating to other feast days, relating to the Mother of God, Mary, within the calendar of the Orthodox Church. Matthew, it's hard to think of another piece of music by any composer where there is such a passionate connection with a faith, in John Taverner's case, faith within and for the Orthodox Church. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a piece that while you're playing it, you really feel like in some way you need to keep some kind of a faith. It's a, it's a piece that lasts 42, 43 minutes. The cellist doesn't stop all the way through, not for a second. It, it requires an amazing amount of faith just to get through it, I think. And the fact is it's in these eight sections, and there's something very significant about the, 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 the pitch, precisely, that he chooses mm. for each section. Yes, that's very interesting because musical scales usually have seven tones. So if you carry on to the eighth, you come back to where you started. And in fact, each of the eight sections descends one tone in a scale until we do come back to the F on which the piece began. Another really important thing to think of as a kind of uh, a vision to uphold whilst we're exploring this music is the concept of the icon. I'm sure everyone here knows what an icon is. They're those extraordinarily beautiful paintings on wood which are evocations of the apostles, perhaps of Mary, or indeed of Christ himself. But of course, these are sacred objects, and they are much more than just pictures. They are effectively visual representations of adoration, and definitely an aid to contemplation. Now, for John Tavener, music, certainly in the case of the protecting veil, is very much like an icon. It's not just about the sound and the listener. It's actually a conversation between music the listeners, and God. Well, now, let's look at some of the key ingredients in this work. I want to take you right through to the very, very final bars of the piece. What we get throughout the work, one of the kind of constants to the protecting veil, is a falling interval of a minor ninth, which is effectively an octave, if you can picture that, with one extra semitone. So in this instance, it's a high F going down to E, F to F would be an octave, add in an extra note, and you get what's called a minor ninth. Now, Tavener writes that this music here, right at the end, these sliding up and down minor ninth, should sound like the tears of the mother of God. But in fact, this music also sounds a lot like sighing, creating at the tail end of this enormous work a hushed but almost apocalyptic atmosphere. 
and the cello left alone at the end, ecstatically, almost impossibly high, reaching, it seems, for heaven itself. So this interval of a minor ninth is, as I say, central to the protecting veil, working, as I think I said before, as a kind of mantra at the end of each of the eight sections of the work. Now, Matthew, mantras or ideas that keep coming round and round without really being changed very much or developed are central to this work, and they fly in the face of most Western classical music, which is all about linear development. Exactly, yeah. I think that's one of the things I find most interesting about the piece, is that rather than having an idea and developing it and varying it and playing around with it, um, what Taverner seems to do is just go deeper and deeper into his central idea. So, in fact, the main melody that we just heard Joe play at the beginning, that melody comes ten times through the piece, almost unchanged every time. And it's as though through that repetition we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the world of the sound. And I suppose repetition is key here. Just as in religious chanting, if you think about it, a small musical figure which is intoned over and over, in order to clear the mind of activity and to open it to transcendental reality. Well, this working around the same set of musical rosary beads, a serene, repetitive simplicity, if you like, has led to criticism from some, especially, you can imagine, modernists who don't like Taverner because he doesn't subscribe to the convention which is of linear development. But as Taverner has often said, his music is to be experienced differently. He is constantly confronting the mystery of God. And he's gone on to say, you can't possibly use the tools of modernism to evoke the sacred or divine. Well, the first appearance of the minor ninth mantra comes at the end of the first section of the work, and its function, each time it appears, is also to drive the music down to the next tone. Remember, Matthew already mentioned this, the fact the piece starts in F, the second section's in E, then D, C, B-flat, A, G, and finally F for the last section of the piece. So, at this point, we've been in F for the first section, and we're driving the music down to E, one step lower, ready for the next part of the work, which is entitled The Nativity of the Mother of God. Here's the mantra, then, at the end of this first section. So now then to the nativity of the mother of God. This tune that we'll hear now is actually based on a Russian znameni chant. That's an old Russian church chant. But this ornate melodic sound, this melodic line, sounds more Indian than Russian. In Tavner's words, he's raga-ized it. Matthew, can you explain that? <laughs> well, I'll try. Um, in Indian music, in the, in the first section of an Indian rag, uh, it always begins slowly. 
and the player or the singer would introduce the notes of that rung, that particular scale, very slowly, sort of one by one. So you'd have a chance to really get to know the different tones on the journey. And also he does it through um, these fabulous little ornaments, uh, which are so different from the ornaments of, sort of the Baroque music or something. They just have somehow an Indian quality to them. Ornament being a little flourish, a little decoration on the front of a note. Just have a listen now to this, the music, the melody of the Nativity of the Mother of God. Did you notice also how that line rocks on a pivot geometrically, to quote Taverner, right in the middle of the minor ninth? It focuses in and in to that middle point before reaching out to the extremes of the ninth. Again, here it is once more. Matthew Taverner talks a lot about geometric shapes in this music, doesn't he? He does, and that's one of my favourite things about the piece, actually, that although, as you've heard already, the character of these melodic lines, it's very mellifluous, it's very sort of pliable, and yet underneath that, the piece is incredibly tightly formed, and we have the eight sections that we've already mentioned, but each one of those sections has almost like a sort of verse-chorus feel to it. So we get to the end, and there's this material that you'll get to recognize, which Taverner calls like bell music. And it has exactly the same sort of geometrical form each time. There's a passage of bells from the orchestra and an answering phrase from the cello, and then that happens five times. So throughout the piece, you've got these little forms which happen again and again and again. And I, I just love the way there's the contrast of this sort of geometry, and on the other hand, these very, very meandering, flowing melodies. And even in the context of the phrase that uh, Josephine Knight just played for us, you could hear how there is a geometric quality, a kind of mirroring that the, that the theme arrives at a middle point and then gradually makes its way out to the outer point from whence it started. Now, it's very apposite that Matthew's just talked about the bell-like effects in this work. So that's definitely what I want to explore next. A kind of bright thunder that you get from the strings sounding for all the world like bells pealing in each section just before the main minor ninth mantra reappears. Here's the first one. A spontaneous burst of joy from the orchestra. The company of angels, perhaps. I just want to come in there, Charles, because another one of the things I actually love about Taverner is that so much of what he writes for you to do is, is almost undoable. And in fact, you know, by its nature, a bell is struck and then it's left to ring. You can't do that on a stringed instrument unless you pluck the string and let it to ring. So I think all the time with Taverner, we're confronted with these things that are not quite possible. Like at the very beginning, you know, a lot of composers will write the directions like sort of allegro or andante, so fast, slow, quiet. Taverner writes at the beginning, what is it? Transcendence with awesome majesty. That's quite a direction, really, isn't it? So, ladies and gentlemen, you get this spontaneous burst of joy from the orchestra, something like the company of angels in music. 
a counterpoint to the solo cello, the mother of God and her unending song. And as you heard, it's set over a thundering drone in three-part basses. The word for drone in ancient Greek is ison. Taverner calls it the eternity note, the note that attests to the constant presence of God. It may growl like thunder, like that, or be on the edge of hearing, or be a glowing chord. In any case, we're secure in its presence throughout. By the time the bell clusters peel forth at the tail end of the third section, the Annunciation, there is development, at least rhythmically. Taverner increases their speed bit by bit by shortening the note values. And then he starts altering the lengths of bars, i.e. the number of beats in each bar. And the falling minor ninth mantra is back once again, driving us down now to C for the fourth section, the incarnation. And here you feel palpably the raw excitement and also, I think, the terror of Mary, casting this way and that, even perhaps looking for a way out. But the pedal, obviously in Taverner's mind, the presence of God, is surely her faith. She is so grounded in it. Matthew, the cello line there feels so improvisatory. It does. It just sort of 
plays around almost with the notes that it's involved in. And, and as an improviser, I found... I hadn't played this piece for about 10 years, and I just did it a couple of times before the skiing accident. And uh, coming back to it, having been improvising for years since, it was really extraordinary because somehow it does have that essence of improvisation all the way through the solo line. I think no more so than the cadenza that we'll come to in a minute. But also in this passage, you just feel that the, that the line just sort of finds its way around and finds itself to new notes and plays around, cascades down and up, and then gets obsessed with two or three notes, plays around with them, and then moves on. So it's a wonderful feeling of freedom in it. Well, let's talk about the cadenza right now. The cadenza is the fifth section of the work, the emotional nexus of the piece. The cello left very lonely on her own. This is the lament of the mother of God at the foot of the cross. And the music depicts her rocking and lamenting. It's based again on Narmeni chant, but tossed and turned around and heavily ornamented. The rag is not far away. This section, I think, actually, I once counted the number of notes. I think there are only something like 10 or 12 different pitches in this cadenza, which lasts somewhere around six or seven minutes. Most cadenzas, I mean, the original function of the cadenza in the classical concerto was to show off the soloist's talent. So they would be fast, they would be high up, they would be as flashy as possible. This is very quiet, it's very low down, it's muted on the cello, and it's just, it's completely obsessed with this tiny number of small notes. And it really, for me, it very strongly evokes the image of a hunched over, grieving mother. Tavana makes much use there of what's called a microtone, effectively a pitch which is somewhere between the, the pitch of a semitone. It's a smaller interval than a semitone, so it sounds to our ears for all the world like it's just out of tune, but it sort of reflects the characteristic breaks in the voice in Byzantine chant. It does, and, and very much so of Indian music as well. In, in Indian music, those quarter tones, those microtones are used all the time for, for emphasis, like in the passage that Joe was just playing there. And um, it's, it was lovely to hear that, actually, because a lot of cellists don't quite dare to play the quarter tones because I think they just think that everyone will think they're playing out of tune. But they add so much color to it. It's absolutely wonderful. And I think also it's, it's a nice time to just drop in that um, there's a fantastic sort of history and geography lesson going on here because a lot of these techniques of unfolding the tones in a scale and also the microtones, the ornaments, are originally Indian techniques, three or 4,000 years old, as written down in the Vedas. And they travelled along the well-known now Silk Route um, and ended up in, uh, in, in the Byzantine tones and chants and then came forward into the Greek modes and then into all of classical music in Europe. So we hear also a little bit of that development 
It's a great reminder, isn't it, that music has been a, one, a wandering tart since the dawn of time. There is no purity in any music anywhere in the world, ladies and gentlemen, because yeah, yeah. it's all been kind of cross-fertilizing with the other musics since before time began. Now, there's another interesting point about this lamenting section, this cadenza that the cello has on its own, is it's set quite low in the cello's register, when so often in this work as a whole, the cello is screamingly high, an instrument, if you like, at the extreme and you might particularly expect that kind of extremity of pitch here in this section where a mother has lost her son. But Tavener is very clear that there should never be angst in his music, and he works very hard to rid his music of any sense of angst. So actually, the mother of God's response to the death of her son is one of a very quiet and contemplative nature. Well, now, obviously, the strings must react to this long solo lament, and they do again, as before, like clusters of bells, but these are muted, crystalline bells, a respectful response to Mary at the foot of the cross, contemplating her son's death. It's clear by now, I think, that this is no traditional concerto relationship between soloist and orchestra, which, broadly speaking, is usually about dialogue between the two. Instead, the string corps reflect the soloist's song, just as the ocean does the moon, or as a dusty mirror does one's reflection. Just one point, actually, just occurred to me while I was listening to that, in fact. Maybe the, the simplest device of geometry is that of symmetry. Those five phrases that the cello just plays, they, they work exactly backwards. There's a pivot point in the middle of the third phrase, and then every note that the cello plays unfolds in the opposite order. But it just occurred to me that those bells are actually like backwards bells, aren't they? They're like recorded bells backwards, like the Beatles used to do on their cymbals. So you, you get the decay first, and then they work up. So knowing John, that's probably intended as well. Well, close connection with the Beatles uh, since the 1960s, so that's I dare right, say that's, that's right. highly probable. Well, the climax of The Protecting Veil lies, not surprisingly, at the resurrection. Tavener said he wanted to create, and I quote, the traditional racket. So the solo cello has a tune which is actually called Christ is Risen. It's a direct quote from Tavener's orthodox vigil service, and it's set over a blazing chord of A major in part of the orchestra. Then some instruments are in canon with the solo cello, and the others in a kind of elated comment on the scene, a scene of unmitigated joy, which, as Tavener marks, should be 
always moving forward. In the penultimate section of the protecting veil, which is entitled The Dormition of the Mother of God, this is the dying Mary inviting the apostles to gather from the ends of the earth to bury her body in Gethsemane, and at the same time she's asking for her son to receive her spirit. And the melody here is an exact copy of another piece by Taverner written four years previously in memory of his mother. It's the second of his two hymns to the Mother of God, which are exquisite little choral works. We play that theme now. that melody repeats again and again, once more the sense of an endless cycle of prayer. And then we're back where we began, the protecting veil music, the cello at extreme height, Mary looking down from heaven or high in the sky and casting her protective veil like an aura, the chord that slowly amasses through the ranks of the orchestra, a gigantic extension, as Tavner repeatedly says, of Mary's unending song. So, music throughout this extraordinary work of utmost devotion and completely devoid of angst. Tavana Summer. This lyrical icon in sound rather than in wood, using the cello, like the music of the cellist, rather than a brush as a sustained vision of Mary depicting, as Taverner himself says, her cosmic beauty and her power over a shattered world. Any questions? It seems that Messiaen managed to uh, have a, a modernist language um, embracing great spirituality, and indeed Stockhausen did. So 
why shouldn't it be that, uh, that Tavner has to reject that language? It's a point of view. It's simply a point of view. In Tavener's aesthetic, in Tavener's sort of mind, in his spirit, there's clearly no sense that any of the modernist practices of, of a Stockhausen, or indeed of a Messiaen, although, of course, Messiaen's modernistic practices were a million miles away from Stockhausen's. But nonetheless, for, for Tavener, they are a million miles away from what he sees and feels and experiences as music, which is an evocation of the love of God. So it's as simple as that. I'm sorry he's not here to answer you himself. Another, ladies and gentlemen. Could it perhaps be that, um, that the tableau was much more closely related to, to popular culture than either people like Messiaen or Stockhausen? Well, it's interesting you make that observation. People often have. Of course, the very idea of, of motifs which cyclically repeat round and round is something you find a lot in all types of, of so-called popular music trance-like elements, even just a simple, the simple binary structure of your basic pop song, that you get a verse and a chorus, then the, the verse with the same music, chorus with the same music, it comes round and round. Of course, that, that sense of, of repetitiveness, um, yes, which means that we do see a lot of correlation between many types of pop music and what Tavner writes. But I think as Matthews so uh, coherently pointed out, there are much older roots to what Tavner does. This very idea that these, these rags essentially, that, that, that started to be sung somewhere in the Indian area like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago and so how elements of those rags, particularly the repetition and various other ways that, that, that syllables or vowel sounds are coloured depending on the meaning of a bit of text, how that idea then started to spread itself around to different parts of the world. He's received that heritage and it's a central part of who he is and how he is. Do you agree? And I yeah, absolutely. And I think also... Um, the, the word repetition is key because I think so much of Taverner's music is about repetition, whereas Messiaen Stockhausen and, and lots of others in the Western canon are about development as opposed to repetition. And in that way, I mean, you can very easily sort of plot Messiaen Stockhausen, you know, in, in the chart of all the Western composers, but Taverner just doesn't sit there. He somehow stepped out of that whole, whole progression of our Western classical music, which is, I think is a quite extraordinary step to make. I don't know how it happened for them, whether it was a conscious step or whether he was just led there somehow, but it, it is, I think, the key difference that between repetition and development. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my thanks indeed to Matthew Barley. Um, it's time, I think, to perform The Protecting Veil, so we'll do just that. Cellist Josephine Knight, the strings of the BBC Philharmonic, led today by Fanula Hunt.
That was The Protecting Veil by Sir John Tavener. The cello soloist was Josephine Knight, and I was conducting the BBC Philharmonic. You're listening to Discovering Music with me, Charles Hazelwood. Earlier this year, I spent several days with musicians and dancers from Salford University, musicians from the BBC Philharmonic and the cellist and workshop leader, Matthew Barley. While I was in Salford, I spoke to Matthew about the creative work he did with the musicians and dancers in workshops which lasted for over a week, ending with a final performance of a piece that the musicians had written for the dancers. Matthew, tell us about the starting point for this work. Well, we wanted to take um, the Protecting Veil, Taverner's piece, as the starting point, but we had a very interesting um, anomaly to start off with. The Protecting Veil is all for strings, and when I was told what resources I had to work with here, it was 35 brass players. So I had to think, you know, what are the ways that we can make something work with all these brass players, you know, using a piece as a starting point that's all for strings. And I thought, well, one of the wonderful things about the protecting veil is the structure. It's a very geometric piece. It's not at all a kind of a normal um, Western classical form. And it happens in eight sections. There's a lot of symmetry there, a lot of sections where the music mirrors itself and turns backwards and things like that. So we've really used the structure as a starting point. And what kind of techniques have you used with the students in order to engender this new material? We've worked a lot with modes because, again, Taverner's piece doesn't contain what we would think of as traditional harmonic progressions. A lot of it works modally. So we just have one note as a bass line. Um, that continues all the way through any particular section and then all the music is sort of built up in structures on top of that. I've done a lot of just splitting them up into groups, assigning them modes, or sometimes asking them to give themselves modes, and asking them to write sections of music, fanfares, bell-like passages, melodic lines, and so on and so forth. Of course, you know, if you're a string player, you can play a note continuously, just moving your bow backwards and forwards. If you're a brass player, you can't do that because you run out of breath. So we've used a lot more rhythmic devices than Taverner has done. created a piece of music off the back of which dancers are dancing and creating a, a dancing narrative. Mm -hmm. Has that been entirely the case all the way along or have the dancers actually shaped some of the music that you've created as well? They have done a little bit, yeah. I mean, the dancers have had, I think, seven days of work altogether. The musicians have had five. When we started off, we were both working with this structural idea of eight sections, first and last sections being the same material as they are in the protecting veil. Two, three, four, five. Turn two, three, four, five. Two, three, four, five, ten, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, five, ten, 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 two, three
My name's Steve Kirkham and I'm the choreographer for the project. I've worked with a lot of musicians over the years and a lot of big orchestras, but I've never actually had a few musicians in the room. Like the first week for two days we had three of the BBC musicians just in the room, just being very free and easy and improvising along to what we were doing and then changing to what we needed. And that was just fantastic, really. I mean, just trying lots of different things. The dancers are all based here in Salford at Salford University and they are on their first year of a new course. So they're still finding their feet with the course and they've never worked in this way. It's been quite intense for them, but they're all totally coming out the other side of it now and have really transformed within a week. It's quite amazing to see. My name's Craig Bennett. For the past week, all I've done is I've come here danced all day and then gone home to bed and that's all I've done. It's just so draining, but so energising at the same time. Hi, I'm Laura Javis. Dancing with the musicians behind us as well while they're playing is something I've never seen or never been involved in and I think it's going to be quite aesthetically pleasing as well. I think it's going to have quite an impact on the audience, but also working with um, Steve as well. I'm quite a fan of his work. So it's been really, really a good experience for me to work with him as well. Matthew Barley. For the first few days, we were all just really busy creating as much material as we possibly could. But as we've come together in the last two or three days, there's been a very nice dialogue of, you know, could you extend this section a bit? Oh, can't dance to that bit. And, you know, could you just draw that movement out a little bit more for us musicians, please? And so on. So it's been very nice. Now, you talk about your work featuring, largely speaking, the same eight sections that the Protecting Veil does. Now, of course, in the Protecting Veil, it starts in the key of F and then gradually mm. works its way down a scale, ending up on the eighth section at F once again. Have you adopted exactly the same pattern? Exactly the same pattern, yes. We've, um, we started on B-flat, being a world of brass. seemed like a good place to start. So we started on B-flat, worked our way down. The only exception is the central section the fifth section, which corresponds to the cadenza in the protecting veil. Now, which is when Mary's at the foot of the cross, lamenting the loss of her son. Exactly. It's the high point emotionally. It's the emotional nexus of the work. And yet it's the quietest, most spare passage of art. Just solo cello, sort of musing and mumbling around on the C-string, muted sound. It's an extraordinary piece. So to mirror that in our form, we actually have a section with dance only. And the dancers have uh, included in their choreography various breathing sounds, sort of fast exhalations and slow inhalations. So you get these wonderful breathing noises. <laughs> What role did the three professional musicians, the members of the BBC Philharmonic, play? Oh, they've been absolutely amazing. Pete on bass, Paul on drums and Julian on violin. They're quite extraordinary. It was wonderful getting the feedback from our students here. So many of them just said, you know, these guys are amazing when they improvise. I'm Julian Gregory and I'm a member of the BBC Philharmonic fiddle section. 
This is the first experience of improvisation and creativity in this kind of way for pretty much all of the students. And I think initially they're thinking, is this good enough? Is this a, <laughs> what are we actually aiming for here? So it's nice to have somebody there to be able to say, yeah, that sounds great. Hi, I'm Paul Turner. I'm the uh, principal timpanist of the BBC Philharmonic. I think the realisation on people's faces that they can kind of uh, create music without having it have it written down in front of them uh, has been really special. A lot of them, I think, it's really kind of stretched and made them realise they can do things they didn't at all imagine they were able to do. So yeah, I think that's my sort of lasting impression this week: opening people's minds to new ideas. My name is Peter Wilmot, and I'm a double bass player with the BBC Philharmonic. I think just meeting all the the young people and, and working with them has, has been great. The, the sort of feeling of uh, community amongst them and us, and, and they've welcomed us, and uh, uh, you know, we've all got on really well together, which is nice, and uh, it is very much a, a communal activity. My name is Kaylee Stringer and I play the trombone. It's been really good actually. I, I expected this week to be dead serious and you know, we'd be sitting down quite a bit writing music, but no, it's been great fun. It's, it's just a nice relaxed atmosphere that Matt's got going and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. He's, he's great to work with. Noon and I'm a percussionist. It's been like kind of out of the box of what we normally do in the brass band, so it's just been unbelievable. It's been really good. <laughs> 